I'm Chef Pete Gagan from Cargill, and we're in the kitchen with Sterling Silver Premium Meats. It's a podcast where we'll be serving up insights and perspectives for chefs and food service professionals. And of course, we'll be digging into the world of premium beef. Because even with over 30 years of culinary experience, I still have an appetite for learning more. I hope you're hungry too. We're coming to you from the Cargill Innovation Center in Wichita, Kansas. And today, we're going to be taking a look back at some of my favorite moments from past episodes. If you've been with us the whole time, you've heard how our podcast has evolved, from a basic home recording to today's gourmet audio version. If you're new to the podcast, this is the perfect opportunity to enjoy a podcast appetizer, a little bite-sized taste of what this is all about. And if you like what you hear, we hope you'll listen to the full episodes for more great content. So, let's dive back into the kitchen. Now, obviously, I love talking to chefs about beef and food, inspiration, and culinary everything. So I was really lucky to be joined by some incredibly talented chefs like Brad Borchart, Sarah Cooney, Janet Bourbon, Stephen Junta, Barry Miles, Eric LaTurk, and Don Dobeck, offering their expert takes on all things beef. Here are a few of those. Chef Brad Borchart, Episode 4. Thinking about, again, your worldview of it, can you tell us a little bit about a few different ways that you've seen beef prepared that you think maybe the states should think about doing? Well, I mean, different styles of cooking, and I think importantly or to note upon is the different cuts and different parts of the animal. So to eat a Peruvian anticucho, you know, a grilled beef heart on the street in Lima uh, with chili powder on it and salt and, and fresh lime juice. It's like beef heart is not going to be something that's prevalent in most of North America, but it's so celebrated and so commonplace in that part of the world. And it's dramatic and wonderful and will leave you speechless when you're standing there on the street eating it. So I love to see how that whole animal is being used in all these different venues. Talking about the thin meats in Japan, when you have go out for sukiyaki or shabu-shabu, which are table-side cooking, and um, ostensibly you're getting all these raw ingredients to either cook on a hot platter with a, a sweetened soy sauce or in an aromatic broth, and you're dunking the vegetables and tofu and noodles and beef into those broth or, or on the, the sizzling plate, and then eating them you know, with its condiments. But there, the, the product is that what, what's standing behind those restaurants is the quality of ingredients and you're getting them all raw. So when you go to a, a shabu shabu restaurant and you get this wonderful platter of perfectly thinly sliced Japanese sirloin that you're cooking with all your guests around this simmering pot of aromatic liquid, you don't really see that here. And all it is is taking the time to cut a premium product really thinly and engaging the guest in a way that wouldn't be normally engaged here. So when you see and experience things like that, it's so different than how you grow up here eating. And it shows you versatility that I think people need to look at beyond center of the plate steaks. Now, that's not going anywhere. I don't want it to. But there's a multitude of ways that we can enjoy this product. Looking outside of the 50 states, there's a lot of opportunities and, and practices that are being done that are just incredible. Chef Sarah Cooney, Episode 5. I'd love to hear one of the most creative ways that you've either yourself or you've experienced someone cooking with beef something that's so memorable to you 
so, I mean, this is not very crazy nowadays, but, you know, when I was a kid, so we're thinking, you know, 30 years ago, um, my dad would take short ribs and he would marinate them in, you know, like a soy, brown sugar, ginger, uh, pineapple, and he would slow cook them on the grill. And it's just memorable to me. Like, I still think of these things and I'm like, gosh, you know, like now that kind of thing is just, you know, you could buy that marinade in the grocery store. But, you know, 30 years ago, pineapple on a grill, people didn't know what that was. Mm -hmm. So it's still like something in my mind and I have some short ribs in the freezer and I kind of want to recreate it, but put my own spin on it. Chef Janet Bourbon, episode nine. Uh, So... If we go back to those early days, what would you say is a, one of the best pieces of advice you were given? Okay. Oh, I was going to say I wasn't given any advice because people were too busy shouting at me. But <laughs> and also, let the record show, I was in a constant state of terror during my apprenticeship. But I think the, the piece that sticks with me was from a British sous chef, Nicola, who said, Roy, there's only three things you say to the chef. And I was like, okay. She said, it's yes, chef. No, chef. It won't happen again, chef. Got it? (laughs) And I was just like, yes. And I I mean, I can't overestimate to you how scared I was. I mean, it was all so new. I'd been to culinary school, but I hadn't really worked, you know, despite the one... Uh, experience when I was still in school working in the cafe. I hadn't worked in a real restaurant and this was a five-star hotel. And um, yeah, so I spent, you know, about three years being horribly scared, but I survived. Uh, But at least you were getting a paycheck this time, right? Uh, Yeah, I was making a um, very princely $4.26 an hour. So yeah, I was living large. Nice. (laughs) Chef Steven Junta, episode 10. I've been working with you for well over 20 years, and I've had a lot of those great experiences too. But, you know, not everybody is at that high, uh, high level, fine dining experience. Maybe they're working at a, at a, um, a little resort, uh, could be at a ski resort or something where it's just your everyday cafeteria style food. But there can be greatness found in, in something like that, too. It's just at a different level. What would you consider greatness for a group of cooks there or for an operator there uh, that really helps them? Again, it's great at a different level. I really love this question, Pete. And I think you know, there were maybe eight or ten cooks uh, on the dinner service at Lebec Fen. So you're right. Not everybody's going to experience that. And it's not saying that, that we were better cooks than somebody that worked at a hotel, but I'll use a hotel as an example. So a lot of hotels have breakfast stations or breakfast as part of the, the hotel cost for the, the evening. And you wake up and you, know, you might have a busy day ahead of you, but you want to start your day off right. You want something tasty and healthy and, and you see this omelet bar and you walk up and there's beautifully sliced mushrooms and cherry tomatoes cut in half and they're maybe they're really ripe and bright red and and some spinach that's nicely cleaned and on ice and really cared for and a variety of cheeses that not not just the cheeses that you would expect that were pre-grated somewhere but maybe freshly grated cheese 
And I'm drooling. Just think about that. I'm th- thinking about making a you know caramelized onion and spinach and tomato uh, scramble. Uh, I'd put bacon in it, of course. Um, <laughs> but that's a way to take an unexpected pleasure, some something very fresh. But you could make all that stuff at home. It takes a little bit of work to pull all of that together and to buy it. But the care in handling it and and keeping it fresh in front of the customer. And providing choices that are not only colorful, but really good for you. I think it's a way of saying, hey, we want you to have a great day. We care about you. We want you to come back. And here's a little gift to us in the form of amazing food that you're not going to get everywhere. So what do you look for when there's been a mistake? Maybe something didn't go right (laughs) with the experience in a restaurant. And yet you walk away and you say, you know, I still give it a great score. I think that they nailed it. So what do you look for when mistakes happen, whether it's the kitchen's fault or the front of the house's fault? doesn't matter. A mistake happened. Yep. What, what are some points you want to bring across? One of the most important things is when we, the minute we realize that there was a mistake made, you have to address it. You know, do you have an immediate perfect answer for that issue no but you come over to that table go to that customer where wherever this is could be a coffee shop doesn't matter and you want to reach out to them at a personal level there and and talk to them try to figure out what happened if you don't know exactly what happened and you have to read the situation because every situation is different on what you need to do next i've been in places where the whole table got you know comped because of a mistake when really you know, a drink or maybe even just saying, oh, I'm so sorry, we're going to correct that. That might have been all you needed to do to, to make it happen. Right. But but that's yeah. we're in that reading, you know, as a chef, you're watching people, you're looking at them eating. So especially in an open restaurant, you can tell if people are enjoying your food or not. If you right. see a look on their face, that's just not right. You can go and approach that table and be like, okay, is everything good here? You know, we have to get good at reading the situation and the people. That's, mm-hmm. that to me is important to really do well in this industry and to have great service. That's a must. And addressing it can just simply be acknowledging that mm-hmm. you don't look happy right now. Yep. <laughs> what can I do? How can I help you out? And that's, that's amazing if someone takes that step towards you. You're, you're going to resp- most customers are going to respond well to that. I I, I want to make this experience the best it can be for you. So where do we go from here? And yeah. there's, I think there's a shared responsibility there. So great answer and great points. Thank you. I have one quick story I want to bring up. Uh, someone told me years ago they went to a pretty high end restaurant in New York City, and uh, someone at their table was their eye was really irritated, and they were rubbing it a lot. So the waiter that was working on that table asked the gentleman, hey, is everything okay? And ah, yeah, my contacts got scratched or something. something's not right. Um, and within like the next five minutes, they came over on a little silver platter with like saline and other like just like disposable type contacts that someone ran down the street to like a Walgreens and took care of that. They didn't charge them for it or anything, but they wanted that person to have a great evening in their restaurant. And it made all the difference of the world. It was that that gentleman told that story 50 times after that night. Easily. I'd say probably 50,000 times. (laughs) Yeah. Right. 
Chef Barry Miles, episode 12. Let's talk about inspiration. You mentioned that before. So, you know, creativity. I'd love to know, and I'm sure there's many different ways, but where does Barry Miles, Chef Barry Miles, get his creativity from? Because you are one of the most creative people I have seen and worked with. Thanks, Chef. I appreciate that comment. Um, Yeah, it comes from so many different areas, you know, whether it's specialty stores. So to backtrack a little bit, you know, I live in Chicago, uh, just south of the loop. I happen to be very fortunate to live very close to Chinatown, Greektown, Pilsen, which is Latin heavy. And the list goes on and on. And I could walk within a mile of my house and get constant inspiration. So one of the ways is specialty stores. TV, to a certain extent, watching some incredible, uh, whether it's, you know, Chef's Table or some sort of street food-inspired show, or mm-hmm. the list goes on and on and on. Uh, reading, of course, through periodicals, and, you know, it's, it's just endless. And, you know, to be honest with you, I get a lot of inspiration from my sons and from people outside of the culinary world who are like, oh, that's a cool dish. I had this dish, but I wonder if you could do this, this, or this. And they're just coming from your consumer's point of view. And then Mm -hmm. we take it as a chef and bring it to that next level. So, you know, I have sons that are 22 and 20 and they, and they love to cook and they're, you know, they're always on social media, of course. So they're like, Hey, do you see this? How about this? Could we try this? So that's another inspiration. And I like looking at my food as what I would call it is like a twisted comfort. So, Mm -hmm. You take comfort food, like we just did an event, I did a Reuben Cuban, right? So it's taking two sandwiches that are people are pretty familiar with, mashing them together, and you have something that maybe someone didn't think about, or a turkey BLT yep. with a with a spicy aioli and a spring roll instead of on a piece of bread. So something that sure. that's uh, approachable, but then with a little bit of twist, so. Chef Eric Leturk, episode 14. So when you are being that mentor to those that work for you. Um, I just want, I want to get back to quality here for a second. Mm-hmm. Let's just say someone comes in and starts working for you, and they, and they came from somewhere that maybe didn't serve the best quality products, but they do a good job and, and they do quality work themselves. How do you get them to understand why it is that you bring in quality and how important it is? Well, first, uh, for me as a chef, I have to bring them good products. And after is to make them understanding the, by the tests, by the preparation, what it is. And they will realize about quality when they move to a different place too, because not everybody mm-hmm. uses quality products. So put some standard in them too, like next job, you have to use quality products so they will not work there. Yeah, for me, it's like, uh, it's kind of education and tests and they have to test the food, they have to... Uh, be respectful about the food, the quality, and what we, yeah. for me as a chef is what I have to buy. I have to give the direction. So, Chef Don Dobek, episode sixteen. I grew up, you know, modestly, and to have the opportunity to cook for some of the most influential people in the Chicago land area, and never in my wildest dreams would I have thought that I would have had that kind of opportunity. So tell us a little bit about some of those influential people. Yeah, so over the years, I've cooked for everybody from Michael Jordan, the Chicago Blackhawks, the Chicago Bears. It's one of those things where you almost forget about all people that you've 
cook for because there has been so many. So wait, wait a second, chef. I got to ask the question. So who eats more, the hockey players or the football players? You know, oddly enough, it's the hockey players. You know, you would think that as big as some of the uh, Chicago Bears players are, they would eat mass quantities of food. But I'm telling you what, the wiry uh, hockey players ate much more. And uh, when you do you know, a banquet and guys are asking for second and third plates. <laughs> uh, it's one, one of two things. Either they like the food or, you know, they just need more of it. Sure. Yeah, their calorie count's got to be pretty high. They burn a lot. Oh, it's amazing, right? I really enjoyed getting perspectives from the front lines and learning about ways restaurant owners and operators can up their games. Like when we talked about managing multiple establishments with Chef Nick Gunangst, menu engineering with Dan Salem, and Restaurant Culture with Mike Isa. Chef Nick Unangst, Episode 2. Early on in this whole COVID piece, did you think that you were going to have to completely revamp any menus? And did you, like, go to the drawing board and try to create some new stuff? Maybe it didn't make it on the menu or not, but I just wanted to hear your thoughts on that and if you found out something really new and cool that you never did before. Probably the only thing that really that we did was, and it was a direction we were going anyway, is we really started working hard with local farmers because they had access to vegetables and they didn't have any place to go with them. Like the cheese makers here in South Carolina where I'm at, you know, their business had dried up. They were stopping production on some things because they just didn't have a place to go with it. Probably the biggest thing for us was it it, it made us more reliant on our local farmers, which in the end is is a great positive thing for our state, for our communities and for our restaurants because we're getting some great ingredients. And those things are what we've turned into the specials and things that are more interesting on our menu because a lot of our restaurants are bigger and do a little more volume. And so uh, when when we are back up and doing better business, the, the farmers wouldn't be able to sustain some of our restaurants. But on a small, uh, isolated instances that we use them on feature sheets and things like that, it's perfectly great. And so it's been uh, been a nice change for us. And we've gotten to know them and... Uh, we really have integrated it into our everyday running of our restaurants. Dan Salem, episode 17. So, you know, do you have any other, I guess, experiences over the years where maybe you can explain something that, you know, maybe it's just not named right and you had to look at it from a different point of view and go, you know, if I change this word or just the overall name of the menu item, maybe it'll sell better. Yeah, I had a client two years ago they had a proprietary burger. They had these to die for fish tacos, you know, an ahi tuna burger. But they had a, a very good fried chicken sandwich, homemade, phenomenal, wasn't selling. So it was a puzzle. You know, it was, again, bottom right quadrant. It's above average profitability, but it's not selling. So we changed that item into a Nashville fried chicken sandwich. And all that it entailed mm-hmm. was just adding the sauce to it, and that turned into a star item. So that was a tweak, changed the item a little bit, but had an already great item that with just one tweak, and they were at the ahead of the uh, Nashville chicken craze. So they kind of beat the market to it up here in the Twin Cities. Mike Issa, episode 18. I would love to get into culture with you a little bit. 
What's your culture like in your restaurant when you think about your staff, you know, yeah. back of the house, front of the house? You need, you need to have that culture that works within, but then also what what's that culture do with the customers? How do they feel it? How do they they see it, understand it? I'm sure they can taste it and, again, see it. So explain a little bit how important that is. Hospitality service, it's, it's a service. Mm-hmm. I mean... In my industry, we always say, I always tell my staff, a good service can save a bad meal. It doesn't mean I'm going to serve you a bad meal, but somehow we might make a mistake. Sure. But a good service know how to overcome and fix the problem. Mm -hmm. So having a culture, every company, besides being restaurants or hospitality service, in order to build your company first, you have to build the culture of the company. When you build that culture and you align them together to certain vision, then you can build your own company. And it took me a while, of course, because I'm walking into historical restaurant from 1968 and has a customer vision of a certain culture in the restaurant. And I'm trying to bring something not different to them probably, but of course it's going to be not something they're accustomed to. I mean, we needed the client, we needed their approval, but the staff-wise, those are the most important part to deliver that process between our vision and the clients. Yep. So that's what we called my in my own restaurant, the culture. These group of a team of my staff, which is we consider themselves all as a team, including me as a staff, we worked very well together and the same vision. And I was operating myself with them on day-to-day operation. I wasn't just the owner with some ideas and hopefully it's going to work. We went, worked step-by-step of the way to maintain the client and try to bring a new client. And those staff is very hard in restaurant business to change staff consistent because why? We all experience that. You're not having maintained service and a culture. And that's how tie in together. Mm-hmm. I've been lucky for my staff. We treat them like a family. I remember when I took over the restaurant, I really don't want to lose them in the beginning. I first met them. I said, what I'm trying to do here when I come, I want to give you, bring you the best tools in the world to facilitate your work to make more money. And I want to make your the restaurant so beautiful that can attract more customers to come to you. And the most important element that I get their attention is, I told them, your opinion matter because you are the direct contact with the client. I also had some enlightening conversations with people who work in the food industry giving us behind-the-scenes looks at things you might not think about when cooking a steak, like the beef production cycle with Dr. Kelsey Phelps-Ronigan, sustainability with Courtney Hall, supply and demand with Stephen Campbell, or food safety with Dr. Scott Eiler. Dr. Kelsey Phelps-Ronigan, Episode 6. So you talk about that part of their life, and, and they're growing, and they're moving away from their mother. Now they're out there in the pastures, and they're feeding on the grasslands. Talk about that in the sense of how much land does it take? I want the audience to get a feel for, you know, the vast amount of land that it takes to raise cattle and why it's not, say, like other 
proteins in the industry where they may be a lot in a small area. They need all this land. And also this land, why is certain land better than others? Right. You're right. Um, it does take a large amount of land to feed an animal on grass. It's a, a couple of acres per animal. And if you think about the number of cattle that we have out in the industry, that those numbers you know, are in the millions and billions of acreage, if you talk from a global standpoint. And so cattle are very efficient at utilizing land that we might not be able to use for, say, traditional crop farming. So the land that they're on is too hilly or too rocky. You know, the soil quality is not good enough to grow crops for human production or feed production, but it can grow grass. And cattle were designed to efficiently convert grass and pasture into pounds of beef. So they're a great sustainability source for land that we might not be able to use otherwise. Yeah, I find it, uh, you know, living here in Kansas, I mean, it's not where I grew up, but <laughs> you take that drive through the Flint Hills up to Kansas City and you look at that Flint Rock. I mean, it's yep. just under the surface. You're not you know, digging a hole and, and planting seeds there, really. So there's just tons of cattle and that land would be wasted if it wasn't pasture grazed on because it also helps with the cycle of that grass regrowing. And there's a lot of good that comes out of using that land properly. Yes, I 100% agree. And I know very well that drive that you're talking about. And it's, I would say, <laughs> some of, it's some beautiful country. And for the people who say Kansas is flat, they're definitely wrong. Yeah. They're driving through that part of the state. There's no doubt. So someone told me years ago, actually, when I was going to move to Kansas, that people tell you it's flat, but try to ride a bicycle across the state and you'll learn real quick it's not flat. <laughs> That's right. Courtney Hall, Episode 7. Just talk about a day for you, right? So outside of being on this podcast, what does a day look like in Courtney's life working for sustainability at Cargill? Well, I would say there's never a dull day in sustainability <laughs> and, and no day looks the same, but in general, and I just love my job. So first of all, I just love getting, waking up in the morning and getting going to work and working on these very important issues for Cargill and our long-term business goals. So I work with a number of our largest customers that buy our beef. So a number of our customers also have really ambitious sustainability goals and they need support from their suppliers to understand what their supply chains look like, what are the issues that we all need to work on together and, and how Cargill can be a partner to them um, to advance their goals. So that's a big part of my job. And then another large part of my job is I'm interacting with some of the world's largest conservation organizations. So I think many people outside of this field might not know, but we work with huge organizations like the World Wildlife Fund or the Nature Conservancy or the World Resources Institute. They have excellent experts on all things sustainability, whether it's climate change or water conservation. And we work with them either to advise our strategy or also to engage in the development of on-the-ground projects that actually make progress towards our, our various commitments. And then another part of my job, which I really love, is working with our sustainability teams and others internally, whether it's helping to understand what sustainability means in their day-to-day -day jobs because everyone at Cargill has a role to play. 
um, how we advance our commitments. And I also like talking to our communications and marketing team and like, how do we tell a good story around this? Because it's a very complex topic, but we know that a lot of people care about it. So how do we get better about talking about it? So that's kind of day life, never the same, never a dull day. <laughs> no, it sounds pretty busy. Well, great work, right? I mean, I can hear the passion in your voice. It's just like you're smiling right now, right? I am. <laughs> it, it's just a, a big smile on your face because you have so much. And that's what we need in, in those roles, right? Is that passion, that fire, that drive that just moves us forward every single day. Stephen Campbell, episode eight. Today, we're going to be talking a bit about economics, supply and demand. It's a pretty simple concept to understand, but could you top line it for us? Yeah, I mean, within the, the really the ag cycle in general, you have your, your typical ups and downs of supply and demand. You have your um, shifts in live cattle and, and what that does to the packers and what they're producing. And ultimately, that then drives what the costing is of box beef. Dr. Scott Eiler, episode 11. You bring up a great point that years ago, when I was entering the industry, one of the is and as as E. coli, especially in the late '90s, was was mid to late '90s, and and we had some very regrettable outbreaks. Many people were affected. The only good thing that came about it was that we improved, mm-hmm. and we we continued to improve, and we had the impetus to improve. But one of the key things during that time was that an industry, a food industry, came together and said, we're going to compete on a lot of fronts. We're not going to compete on food safety. And there's, we continue to participate to this day in a variety of forums and information sharings and sharing with our competitors. Goodness sakes, Pete, we'll let, at times, we've let our competitors into our facilities. We've walked into our competitors' facilities just to look at their food safety practices. Sure. And there's there's very few other places or very few other aspects of the business that we do where we would we would say no that is truly non-competitive exactly and we're going to help everyone be successful. I think that's amazing and and that's information that I, I believe needs to be out there and and for people to understand. Sometimes people think the the big guys are bad guys, right? When and it's like, wait a second here. We're working together as uh, to do things correctly and it helps everybody out. And when it comes to food safety, there is no question that we find out something, we're going to share it. What's good for for the industry is great for the people. It's never good if someone gets sick. I think it brings the industry closer together. Maybe years yeah. ago, there wasn't that. There, no, I'm never going to talk to you. But it actually, outside of food safety, it, it just brings the industry closer together. And there's competitiveness, yes, right? Just like a local restaurant competing with the guy next to him and so forth. But but there's a lot more handshaking nowadays and sitting down and, and having a beer with the guy, the chef across the street from you, even though maybe at the end of the day, there's you're competing for the same dollars and the same customer. But there there isn't that, I'm not going to talk to you attitude anymore, right? So I, I love it. I think the world is actually, you know, the news will tell you that it's not a better place. I believe it's a better place than it was 15 years ago, 20 years ago, 30. We keep improving, so. No, it's absolutely correct. And if you and I could come up with a theme of this particular podcast, it appears to be peace of mind, mm-hmm. right? Our families, Pete, you got a young family. Yep. My daughters are growing up, and at some point they may have their own families. And they got enough to worry about. 
People have enough to worry about. They shouldn't have to worry about the safety of their food. Doesn't mean that they shouldn't think about it. Doesn't mean that they shouldn't take the care and concern that the steps that they could take in their homes to protect their families, but they shouldn't have to worry about it. Everyone has that right to consume safe food. And it's our jobs collectively to make sure that, you know what, we've given them a peace of mind. Exactly. That we've done everything possible. I got new insights on trending beef topics when I talked with Tom Caton about salt and Chris Moat on dry aging. Tom Caton, episode 13. I had a story for you, Chef, if I could share it. Is that one of my... I would love to hear I it. mean, it was uh, going to school. Is we had one of these uh, professors, you know, been around the beef business, and he knew how to do it right, but he would take a prime rib uh, bone in, and he would sit there, and he says, we're going to cook this. And he'd come out and pulled out this bag of this coarse salt, and he packed a one inch of that coarse salt all the way around that. So it was basically packed in a bed of salt, and he baked that mm-hmm. thing. I thought, well, man, I'll never be able to eat that. That'll be salty. It came out of the oven, one of those cooked slow and low, broke all that salt because it became caked. And, you, you know, you kind of a, an experience just watching him take that caked salt off that meat. And then when he, mm-hmm. he sliced that, we're eating that. That was just, um, I don't know, I guess that would call that heaven on a plate because it wasn't <laughs> salty, but the flavor was you just couldn't describe it. And I could never duplicate sure. it without doing that or attempting to do that process. That was just a great experience yeah. from a, uh, a professor that appreciated the meat that he taught and actually could cook it. That's amazing what that'll do, that encrusting of salt. I've had seafood like that, whole fish. And you would say to yourself, wow, this is going to be so salty, right? No, it's created a crust on the outside. First of all, you're not going to lose any of that moisture. But you are absorbing some of that into the meat, and it just stays juicy. And it's just a cool trick. It takes a little bit more work than maybe doing just a regular roast or throwing something on a grill. But you're right. It is an amazing uh, experience. I have a little story, too, and we're talking about salt. I was in South America, and— uh, by no means am I trying to say anything bad about anybody out there, but I, I was showing some chefs down there about cooking beef steaks like we do here in the States. They use a lot of what they call rock salt. And this salt is 20 times bigger chunks than, say, our uh, kosher salts that we normally use. And down there, they don't season prior to cooking, and then they use that rock salt afterwards. And, I mean... You get a chunk of that salt that's great texture. I mean, it's a lot of texture. And you get a saltiness that's great. But but when I watch them season this meat, they put the salt on there, and 99% of it rolls right off. And it's not really doing what we just talked about to that meat. So they're not holding on to moisture. They're not unfolding those proteins and and making it more tender. They're, They're not giving that full seasoning throughout that that salt when it actually does its whole thing through that whole 8-ounce piece of meat, 10-ounce piece of meat, you're not experiencing that. When I personally was seasoning the way I do on a steak, and let's just say a strip loin, the looks on the face of these chefs was like, what are you doing? That's just too much salt. I was like, well, let's compare what you're doing to what we have going on here. I said, and... We'll still use your finishing salt, as I would look at it, too, as, a, as that little nugget we talked about earlier, that crunch, that little pop, right? So I still seasoned the steak and did one that wasn't seasoned, cooked the two up, and then I gave it to them, and I said, here, try your way and try this way. And these chefs were just, like, 
oh my lord, this is crazy. I, I can't believe how much better this is. And I believe today they're probably looking at how salt would work differently. I just don't think something like what we consider a kosher salt was even available. But it, it was eye-opening to them, and I thought it was really cool. Well, I bet that whole experience, I wish I could have been there to watch and, and film those people's expressions of the before because you... It was a game changer for you, I bet. You know, once again, I use that word mm -hmm. a lot because it's, and you didn't speak a lot. You said, let me just hang on. Let me uh, do this and let's go cook it and see what you think. And uh, yeah. and a lot of people today, you know, generational cooking and getting families back together, thank you very much, is we've always done it this way. Why do you, why do you do Because grandma did it that way, granddad. And mm -hmm. I think today... We have a lot more things than we did in that that boring little salt shaker in the middle of the table. Ah, uh, sure. I just I'm going to hang on to that. Doing less is more, and knowing what salt brings to all of our formulas, and especially our meat products. I mean, we couldn't mm -hmm. make our meat products today, you know, without Mother Nature and the cow to start with that. But in this case of being good domestic uh, users of that, that salt is really makes everything better. Chris Moat. Episode 15. A really interesting conversation that I had with a chef in uh, Victoria recently was that he wanted to do a dry age top sirloin and was asking for some feedback on how we might do that. So um, what we ended up doing is splitting the coolant off the top of the top sirloin and, of course, seaming out the sciatic and removing, you know, all the connective tissue around it. But we left those three logs, if you will, intact uh, with the face cuts on and Typically at Centennial, we remove that. But in the case of this particular program, it helped to protect his his yield. Sure. Right? Because, you know, typically you're going to grind those off anyways. Uh, so it ended up working out really well. It's kind of an example of a, a product that I originally kind of hum and hoed about. And I thought, hmm, I'm not sure how successful it would be, but it, it turned out unbelievable. Wow. So, I mean, I, I could see like a, a, a coolot being pretty darn delicious that way. It has a lot of fat cover and everything on it. You know, once you've seen that all out, it's not a lot of fat on the outside. So what was, what was that like? It's probably much shorter aging because you're going to lose moisture quicker. Is that what you ended up with? Yeah, it's pretty accurate. Um, okay. When we did the aging for that, knowing that we were going to be putting smaller pieces into the room, we wet aged that subprimal out to 45 days wet age okay. and then put it in the room for an additional 14 days. Oh, okay. And it gave it that, yeah, it gave it that beautiful crimson crust that you would expect. And then, of course, as you trim that down, it gives you the option to leave a little bit of the patina on there. Mm -hmm. The patina being not the crust itself, but that, as I say, that dark crimson color that's, you know, just underneath there. Pretty spectacular. And of course, if you put dry age beef or dry aged fat in particular on cast iron, it basically turns into a, the most wonderful looking beef fat potato chip you've ever had in your life. So <laughs> pretty spectacular. Going to have to try that one. No doubt about that. <laughs> I mean, beef fat, who doesn't like that? But as a chip, mm. uh, yummy, right. yummy. Most recently, I had an amazing time talking beef and drink pairings with Cal King, Lanny Hoff, and Mike Issa, spotlighting cocktails, beer, and wine. Cal King, episode 19. So is there anything else that, you know, from a pairing standpoint, you think to yourself, hey, if people are going to make their own drinks, or if there's another bartender out there that's listening to this, or a chef, you know, anything else that we haven't really touched on that you think pretty important to know? 
honestly, at my home bar and a little bit at work, I've been playing around with sherry a lot more. I think okay. it's kind of a it's a it's an out there. It's an old old person's booze and fortified wine, um, mm-hmm. but it is so so unique and funky and weird. It's a yeasty barrel aged, um, bitter nutty sour wine. Um, and it, but it, it, it does so many cool things in cocktails and, you know, it's, it's another like really, really excellent, uh, pairing with in particular dry aged meats. And there's multiple levels of dry aging too, right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's stuff that's really funky out there. That's probably pretty tough to, to pair with, I would think. But at the same time, something that's got a nice little nuttiness to it. Sounds like doing something with that sherry would be perfect. Absolutely. Lanny Hoff, episode 20. If we go back to some basics, where do you go when you're thinking about, let's say, grilling steaks or uh, stews and pot roasts? Can you just give some thoughts on that? Well, if you're firing up the grill, you are creating a layer of flavor on a piece of beef that didn't exist when you started. So you're Mm -hmm. modifying that in a very fundamental way, and you're creating a major flavor component with the caramelization of it, you know, the Maillard reaction, all that stuff. So you can go one of two ways when you pair that with a beer. You can either accentuate that, like in an extreme example, you could use a smoked lager with, a, with something that you put on the grill, mm-hmm. or you can go a different direction and try to complement it. My recommendation is to look, look at the sauce, look at the other things that are being served, and that'll give you a hint. I always like... When I'm trying to pair something with beer, I like to find a beer that has a flavor that's going to be on the plate in some regard. So in the case of a grilled steak, for instance, and even more than like a flat top steak, you're going to have you know, that little bit of carbonization that happens. So what you want is a, maybe a beer with a little bit of chocolate malt, a little bit of roast barley, something that's got a little bit of a kind of a sharp, dark flavor, right? Now, let's expand a little bit. Let's say you grill a steak and you put a mushroom cream sauce on it. Now we're in Crazyville. So what are we going to do with that? I think <laughs> coming up with a beer that can cut through that might be better. Maybe something that's got mm-hmm. a little more carbonation. See, there are so many variables with beer. That's what gets exciting about pairing is that you don't have to be locked into any one thing. No. There's a, oh man, there's a beer out there that has everything. You could have you can have two beers side by side. They look the same. They fundamentally taste the same, but one has more carbon dioxide in it. And then it reacts with your palate in a different way. It can lift up a dish that needs lifting. It can cut through a, a heavy sauce that needs cutting through. So you can play with all that stuff. So, I mean, you said simple. I'm not really good at simple, so I'll try to dial it back. <laughs> Here's my That's bottom right. line. Grilled steak, get yourself a porter. Get yourself a nice little stout goes with that steak beautifully. If you have a a big, creamy, heavy sauce on top of it, you can go a different direction with maybe a high alcohol, hoppier or blonde beer, you know, something like a Belgian triple or a double IPA might go really well with that. Now, you also asked about braises and that's where you get into this, like you want to wrap yourself in a comfort blanket. When you braise something, you're not doing it necessarily to like challenge yourself so much. You just want to have something that you can lean into and it'll, it'll stroke you on the forehead and tell you that you're pretty. So (laughs) in a situation like that, you want a beer that's going to help kind of weave that blanket around you. So you're going to go for something that doesn't have those sharp edges. You want maybe a beer that's amber in color and malty. Sure. Wow. That's just making me really hungry. (laughs) 
Mike Issa, episode 21. Part of this is, is trial and error too, right? And understanding. Some things go well, some things don't. But you, you've mentioned it before. Drink what you like. But there are those opportunities where if you just nail it, you've got that right cut of beef and you've got the right pairing of, of, of a wine, whether it's aged perfectly or whatever. And when you put the two together, it can be magical. Right. And and it that's all that whole umami bomb going off in your mouth. I mean, again, if you if you like Pinots, that's great. It may not be the best pick for that fatty ribeye, but it's worth trying that younger cab or something that's gonna really go well and, and trying that experience. You can drink your Pinot before the steak hits your table, right? And then switch. <laughs> and have that experience. Now, you know, Chef Pete, Pinot from different region is going to work well. Sure. Let's say Burgundy in France, which is the same grape. But of course, their terroir is different than ours. It's uh, a wine designed to age for many years. It has more and uh, like a mushroomy, earthy flavor. Uh, it's still a thin grape. Mm-hmm. And if they age properly and, you know, at a medium age, I'm sure it will pair real well with any of the cuts that you like. You know, many, many years ago, that's over 15 years, I studied a sommelier and wine educator, and I learned all this. In two weeks, I forgot everything. <laughs> <laughs> so people ask me, are you a sommelier? I said, by consumption, yes. Sure. Yep. So reality is you need to try other wines, and there is no formula on wine. I, but I can tell you, based on my experience as well, that wine is a growing thing. What you might not like today, you might like tomorrow. Sure. And for other factors, the wine grow on you, you feel you need more powerful wine. And I think we experience that in our beef industry, Chef Pete. If you notice, when people start on a well-done steak, and we struggle, you and I probably, how we would like to explain to this client, you know, we're going to ruin the beef, we should not have well-done and we educate the client slowly to go higher with temperature. Mm-hmm. And and I've done it with my friends. Sometimes close your eyes and eat medium rare. And that's the only thing they eat now, medium rare, because they feel the juice, that's, it's all about perception, basically. Yep. And wine is the same way. You want to give yourself time to grow with it and learn other wines and uh, be aggressive a little bit. Get out of your box. Of course, we wrapped up each episode talking favorite cuts of beef. Here are a few of my favorites from Courtney Hall, Dr. Scott Eilert, Chefs Brad Borchardt, and Janet Bourbon. Chef Brad Borchardt, episode four. I haven't asked you this yet, but I'd love to hear what your favorite cut of beef is. To eat, to cook, everything about it. Well, I love it all, but I'd have to say if it was, you know, Desert Island here, I would want short ribs. Uh, they're incredibly versatile, you know, slow braised uh, with mashed potatoes and wild mushrooms and a great red wine is is soul satisfying and really, really as close to a last meal as I would ever request. But then again, if you get into some of the Asian preparations, you know, the Korean barbecue, when you slice the short ribs against the grain and cut through the bone and grill them, you get a great grilled steak experience that has tremendous mouthfeel, 
huge flavor. You don't have to worry about taking a temperature. You want to cook it all the way through. And it's a thin meat. You can, you know, serve those whole strips on a platter or cut them up and put them in a taco or on a tostada. The short rib to me just, you can make it do whatever you need it to do. Mm. Don't we wish all the cuts were be like that, right? <laughs> Well, yeah. maybe, maybe maybe the whole animal was one big short rib. Uh, <laughs> love that it. would be amazing, huh? Chef Janet Bourbon, episode nine. Tell us what you love in the beef world. I think that's the easiest question you've asked this whole time. <laughs> My favorite cut is going to be a sirloin flap. Mm-hmm. And my preference is to have it grilled to medium. The way I normally do it is with kind of a coffee, chili, brown sugar rub. And then because it's somewhat lean, I like to serve it with a chimichurri. I love sirloin flap because it's just got that, you know, it's sirloin. So it's got that huge beefy flavor. You cook it to a nice medium, cut it against the grain, a little bit of heaven on a plate. Oh, yeah, I agree with you there. Courtney Hall, episode seven. When we do In the Kitchen with Sterling Silver, whether I'm talking to a chef or not, we need to talk a little bit about your favorite cut of meat, or beef in this case. What is your favorite cut of beef? Okay, so this is new for me. Well, new-ish, but my husband is Brazilian, so I've been fortunate to live in Brazil for some parts of my life. And I feel like you cannot live in Brazil without eating delicious picanha. So (laughs) that is absolutely my favorite cut of meat, more because it has all of these great warm feelings around it. So we would go to my husband's family ranch or farm and have all the aunts and uncles around for beer and uncles would be grilling picanha all day long and just slicing it off for <laughs> for you to nibble on while you're drinking your beer in the in the warm sun. Oh, that sounds delicious. It, <laughs> it sounds <is>. e- it <laughs> sounds even better envisioning eating it on a ranch down in Brazil. Right? Yeah. So I mean right of that source. So for those of you out there that don't know, picanha would be the top cap of the top sirloin. Oh so we tend to call it a culotte in the US here. But that's uh, picanha. Go to a Brazilian restaurant and that's what they'll call it. Uh, It is phenomenal. There's so many different ways you can cook it. Uh, Smoking it, uh, sous vide, roasting it, grilling it. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. And something that doesn't need much more than a little bit of salt. Dr. Scott Eiler, episode 11. So when you're at home and you're cooking, what's your go to for that? Oh, oh, that's easy, Pete. That's the obliquus abdominis internus. Oh, that one, huh? That's yeah. that's one of my favorite too. Yeah, you know, I I couldn't resist throwing out a Latin <laughs> muscle name because I know how much it just irritates my culinary colleagues. But we scientists throw out a Latin name. Just tell me what cup we're talking about. We're talking about, of course, sirloin flap. Oh, it's amazing. Yes, it's been a delicious ride so far. I hope you've enjoyed taking it with me. And if you missed an episode or are new to In the Kitchen with Sterling Silver, I encourage you to dig into all the episodes and fill your brain with some tasty info. And be sure to stay tuned for more new episodes coming soon. Until next time, happy eating. 
To get the next episode delivered to your inbox, subscribe on our website, sterlingsilvermeats.com. Just sign up for our e-newsletter at the top of the page. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast platforms. And be sure to follow at Sterling Silver Premium Meats on Instagram. Until next time, we'll see you in the kitchen with Sterling Silver Premium Meats.